This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. There are few things so affirming as growing plants from seed, but this is also a gardening skill and activity that can be shrouded in mystery and result in a gardener feeling intimidated and even frustrated. In her own garden life and in her new book, co-authored with Sabina Ruber, Claire Foster removes the fear and mystery and underscores the joys and benefits to your garden and to the world of growing flowers from seed. Claire has a long history in the garden world. She's currently the garden editor at House and Garden UK and has been a garden writer for nearly 20 years, having started her career at Gardens Illustrated magazine. She gardens as much as time allows and is developing a new cottage garden in Berkshire, England. Her books include Compost, Your Allotment, and Painterly Plants, as well as her newest, The Flower Garden, How to Grow Flowers from Seed, which is just out this year from Lawrence King Press. Claire joins us today from her home and garden in Berkshire, England. Welcome, Claire. Thank you very much. So I've given you an introduction so people know sort of where you are and where you come from, but that very rarely actually gives an indication of what people do all day with their time and how they relate to plants. So describe for listeners what, what you do as, as a garden editor, as a garden writer, as a gardener. I'm very lucky and I work mostly from home. Um, I have a job where I go into the office in London one day a week. Uh, so the rest of the time I'm, I'm writing at home. I commission other writers as well. And I commission photography, which I, I love. I love the, the visual aspect, especially of my job and working on a magazine. And a lot of the time I am writing myself, which I love. And of course, because I'm at home, <laughs> I tend to um, punctuate my day, shall we say, by going outside, uh, looking at my garden, going out to my greenhouse and enjoying it as much as I can and doing little tasks quickly. Yeah. Let's go back to how you became interested. I, I want to follow up on quite a bit of what you just said about your current day-to-day work, but I'd love for you to describe for, for listeners your earliest influences. What brought you to being a plant-loving person and what were perhaps your earliest influences in the way of people or places or plants that led you to be this person? I, I did land in it completely by accident. Um, which I think is often the way. I talk to so many people, even quite well-known garden designers, who have have come to, to what they do by accident. And because they love it, they're good at what they do. I was brought up with a garden. We lived in, in Somerset, my parents gardened, and myself and my three sisters were always kind of encouraged to help and didn't particularly want to help <laughs> you know we re- definitely didn't want to be weeding the garden mm. but we might reluctantly be picking raspberries or digging potatoes so I always you know had a had that connection and I started off my career in book publishing actually I, I was working for Thames and Hudson actually the second book publisher I, I worked for mm-hmm. and I was working in the publicity department and working on some of the garden books so I had connections with some of the gardening publications and I decided I wanted to work on a magazine so I applied for a job at Gardens Illustrated magazine 
with no horticultural experience really and no journalistic experience (laughs) and I got the job amazingly enough (laughs) and started off as a sub-editor and just kind of jumped in at at the deep end and, and really enjoyed it and it was while I was there that I started gardening so the editor of the magazine Rosie Atkins at the time she was really good at kind of encouraging me and pushing me really in my job and she also suggested and encouraged me to get an allotment I was living in London at the time and I I did have a garden I had a tiny little courtyard but it was really too small to to grow anything um, significant Uh, had a few herbs in pots and Rosie nudged me into getting this allotment which was fairly terrifying at the time but I persuaded my cousin to to share an allotment because it was a big allotment the standard English allotment size which is it's a pretty big plot of land and so I managed to get this allotment and, and started growing and absolutely loving it growing my own vegetables and flowers and I was still in my 20s and all my friends were kind of you know looking at me going what are you doing (laughs) why are you doing this and I I didn't care I absolutely I just loved it and almost old before my time yeah or young before it became young to do such things so what years Mm -hmm. did you start at Gardens Illustrated and then begin your allotment I think I started in 1997, and so a couple of years after that, I, I, I got the allotment. That's great. And then I was at Gardens Illustrated for probably eight, seven or eight years, and, and, and I started having, having children, and then really didn't want to be working full-time, and, and just found it incredibly hard. I did go back to work full-time after, after my first one and found it really hard and then got pregnant again quite quickly and didn't go back after after my second baby because while I was on maternity leave found out by chance again that the job at House and Garden was coming up garden editor and went to see the editor got the job and didn't go back after my second maternity leave which made me feel a bit guilty and sad because I loved Gardens Illustrated and by then I was editor but it just this this job at House and Garden. I've been there for fourteen years now. It's just completely fitted into my lifestyle. It's been amazing, really, because I've been able to be there for the kids who are now fourteen and sixteen, as well as stay doing the the, the kind of work that I absolutely love. Yeah, and that's a really important element, I think, of both our gardens and our garden work in this life. Is that they they fit into your whole life, not a segmented life of work, home, you know, some fun somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. They all fit together. Yeah. And I think that's an important kind of journey story for other people to hear, uh, especially other young parents, whether, you know, male or female, as to how anyone puts this whole collage of life together. Mm-hmm. When you were at Gardens Illustrated, you began your real garden writing, you began your real gardening. You also began your book writing in earnest, which all related to the garden. And one of the things I love about the arc of your book work is how you take on some of these 
really kind of foundational elements to gardening so that as you are learning, maybe you are also then sharing with us not too too much later so that other people who may not have some of these foundational skills handed to them in early life in their own homes can follow along and learn with you. So I feel this way about the, the book about compost. I feel about this way about your allotment book. And while the painterly plants might have extended a little further beyond foundational, the the flower garden and growing flowers from seed really comes right back around to some of these simple and yet often also complex at the same time skills that you need to garden, which if someone hasn't shown you, can really be kind of mysterious and intimidating, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's true. I hadn't really looked at it like that before. But I guess what I, I enjoy doing is writing in a way that is very accessible to people and learning the skills from other people first mm-hmm. and then translating that in, in, into text that isn't too intimidating. So people can to, you know really get something out of it. And with a compost book, I mean, I was really young when I wrote that. And, and I, it came about because I was doing a series on my allotment in Gardens Illustrated. And someone from the publishers uh, had just seized on this idea for, for a book on compost. And they'd seen my article on compost in Gardens Illustrated and rang me up and said, do you fancy writing a book on compost? And I I was, I think I laughed when when she first (laughs) rang me because a whole book on compost, is that possible? And then I went away and kind of thought about it and researched it and and thought, well, yes, I mean, there definitely, there's definitely a whole book on it. And I went away and I, I, I wrote it. And I, in order to do that, I spoke to a lot of people on the allotments who are always very happy to, to share all their knowledge with you. And there were lots of, of the old school type allotmenteers. So old men, really, who, who had been gardening there for a long, long time. And they loved it. They, they loved, you know, sharing all their compost secrets with me. And that's what I hope, you know, I hope I brought out it, it, in the book. Yeah, yeah, you definitely did. And it, it does touch on this, what I find to be almost 100% universal uh, attribute of gardeners is that they are incredibly generous and they do want to share. So even if you weren't taught these things or immersed in these things at the knees of your grandparents or parents, uh, there's people that are very happy to share them their own stories and experiences with you. And one of the things that I love about the, the flower book and that you really bring to this is the real importance of experimenting of failing, of trying again, of trial and error and observation of your own and to not give up because the first set of seeds dies for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I really think that there is no right and wrong with, right. with gardening. <laughs> and once you once you kind of accept that, you garden better, I think. You know, I mean, I still have failures I mean even this season I've had failures um with seed sowing in in particular because things sometimes just don't germinate or you or they you get damping off it you put 
your seedlings out too early and the frost comes, you know. There are lots of things that can go wrong. This is definitely one of the things I loved about reading just the introduction to the book was your description of you and Sabina who, with whom you worked on your painterly plants book. Uh, you would come up with this idea and then she got way ahead of you and you had a really wet year and nothing was working and it just – everything hadn't gone well. And that very kind of humble beginning to hearing this from, you know, someone that we we look at and say, oh, she must know. So I can learn from her. But that that we all will go through these kinds of experiences with seed is it's reassuring that you're not alone when you kill some seeds. Um, (laughs) Or they aren't a huge success right off the bat. So what made you walk through for listeners? What brought you to the inspiration to do a book on seeds at this particular time? And and how did that come about to partner with Sabina? And which, you know, which of you played what roles for the development of the entire book? The idea came about probably five years ago now. We had just brought out Painterly Plants and we had loved working together on that. We're friends as uh, as well as colleagues, really. I've known Spina for a very long time, and and we both love growing. So we it first started off as a as a concept for a book about annuals mm-hmm. because we had both started growing from seed, and then Sabina got this got a job with Chilton Seeds, um, who's a very good uh, family run seed company over here in the UK, and she was photographing. She was growing flowers for them and and photographing them for their for their catalogue so she was being sent all sorts of delicious goodies you know mm-hmm. the seeds in the post and she would give some of those to me and um we just started growing and so it kind of span off from there really and 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 grew and because she was photographing we we just thought well why not make a book um and then i i moved house and i inherited this greenhouse and that just, I mean, that I was able to grow so much more and it just spiraled then. And we've just had such fun with it. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell. And this week we're talking seed and the joys of growing good, interesting, fun, colorful and life affirming garden flowers from seed with Claire Foster, author of The Flower Garden and garden editor at House and Garden in the United Kingdom. We'll be back for more with Claire. Stay with us. Hey, so you want to know what's been really fun this past spring? I'll tell you. It's not only seeing the garden and the spring landscape growing, but to also see Cultivating Place growing alongside it. The program is getting heard on other radio stations around the country. Have you heard CP on your public radio station? I want to give a shout out to some of the stations that have featured the program in just the past few months. KZYX in Mendocino County, California, and The Sea in Florida, and KVNF in Colorado's beautiful Delta County. Also, KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. 
thank you all and welcome to this green and growing community of impassioned, informed, and caring plants people making a difference in the world by cultivating their places through the human impulse to garden. If you'd like to hear the program on your local public radio station, let them know that every episode, and indeed the entire series, is available weekly on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. If you need more information, just reach out by email and we'll give you all the details. We'd love to be seated into the healthy soundscapes wherever you all are. Now, back to our conversation on Growing Flowers from Seed with Claire Foster of House and Garden, United Kingdom. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Claire Foster, gardener, writer, editor, sharing with us about her garden life journey, especially as it relates to growing flowers from seed. We're back to hear more about the different kinds of flowers to grow from seed, including annuals, biennials, grasses, herbs, perennials, and more. When I look at the the table of contents and see, you know, how that flows. What criteria did you two set for your contents and the the flowers you would include, which aren't always just traditional flowers. They are also uh, flowering herbs, flowering grasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a lovely wide range. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it. it wasn't encyclopedic in any way we didn't want it to be really we we wanted to include the plants and the flowers that we were really growing and that we knew worked really for people so cutting flowers and as well as herbs and the edible side of things mm-hmm. we we really focused on on the plants that 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 we were we were growing and that we could recommend firsthand and i think Again, because Sabina was working for Chilton Seeds and had access to different varieties, we were quite specific in in the varieties that we were recommending, even though those change all the time. I mean, there's quite a few varieties now of of certain flowers that we would have put in because they they just change the varieties the whole time and find new things and new exciting colors just just the 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 plants that that we would recommend ourselves i think was the the main criteria and and the publishers wanted us to do the bee friendly section which i think was a very good idea actually because i think there's a, a lot of interest in obviously ecology and biodiversity at the moment and insects mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. yeah this is one of the things that resonated with me about the book when it first came across my desk was the way it is you know it's a pretty straightforward book it's about growing flowering plants from seed to fill out your your garden over the course of a season on one level and then when I, as i was reading i kept sort of making little ticks along the margins or underlining because it does get to a lot of universal 
cultural conversations the gardening world is having, is grappling with right now that I think are all important. And, you know, among those would be uh, you know, ecological and seed biodiversity. So, you know, just the fact that of trying to grow from seed opens up for almost any gardener a whole range of plants you would never find at the local garden center. Mm-hmm. And mm. it also then, as you were saying, as seed changes and changes and changes with the trends, if you are growing from seed and that seed is able to come true – uh, from seed that you know it reproduces for itself, you are also protecting the biodiversity and availability of seed, so it gets to seed sovereignty. And I think that is a, a very. I'm not sure what it's like in the the UK, but that is a very big topic of conversation here for heritage varieties, for culturally significant varieties among um, different groups of people. The Indigenous Seed Keepers Network comes to mind immediately. The seeds of the African diaspora here in the U.S. is it's a big part of that garden community's conversation. And then, it you know, you, you mentioned the fact, and it's clear if you ever grow from seed, it's much more economical. You you spend a lot less money. You create a lot less plastic waste in the world because you don't come home with your 10, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be in the UK, but your $14 one gallon pots using a lot of soil that comes from somewhere and water and and whatever chemicals might have been put on it at the nursery, you bypass all of that, which I think is uh, an important thing to point out. What made me laugh when I saw a comment on one of your Instagram posts, Claire, from Ginny Blom, who said, "You know, annuals are going to save the world," and um, <laughs> yes. which which is which is true. But you you never you you never preach these things in the book. They they come up as a result of what you're sharing with people because you never get far from the fun and the color and the joy. So as you were working on the book with Sabina, were some of these bigger cultural conversations sort of at the forefront for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, the only trouble is with a, with a book of, of, of this sort and of this size, that you're, you're limited with your word count. And, <laughs> and, and in fact, quite a lot of my text was cut, which is which is a bit of a shame in a way. But yes, absolutely. I mean, these things, it is the subtext for the for the whole book, really. But more than anything, I think, and, and keeping that kind of the, the simplicity of the framework was key because I I just want to encourage people to try, to try doing it. And yes, for the fun of it and the colour of it in the garden and for the lack of expense that mm-hmm. you can create your own garden so cheaply and so quickly. You know, I haven't had to go out and buy any annuals for my pots this year. I've grown it all from seed. And it's so satisfying. I mean, just just the whole process of it. I I don't think I can kind of do without it now. It's something that almost makes me tick. Um, and I think I know some of us suffer from sad syndrome during the winter. But now I have a greenhouse and I can grow. I can sow things in autumn and I can go out there literally in the dead of winter and see seeds sprouting. I mean, it just really keeps me going. It's incredible. I think that the well-being theme, I think, has definitely been another subtext of our book and something that's come up 
um, in conversations with, with Sabina and myself. I mean, we, we talk regularly on the phone and compare notes about what's going on and, and, and keep each other going and enthused. And I, I think that's been, that's been part of it, really. And hopefully that comes over in the book. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's one, it was one of the early um, concepts that I really resonated with was you, you discuss and you describe how growing things from seed put you in a very different relationship with plants, a much more intimate one that allows you to understand how they grow, why they grow. If they fail, it helps you to observe perhaps why they fail, which by extension, teaches you more about them and what they need and and puts you on a different yeah a different relational level with them mm. I think you you look more closely at plants if you've grown them yourself um you nurture them more and and you really really observe them and i think i think it, it it's it's just really good for you to do that because you then understand the plant more and you're connected more with the seasons because you see the cycle of what's going on and how mm-hmm. it grows and 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 it just yeah it makes you feel good. Claire Foster's new book The Flower Garden: How to Grow Flowers from Seed is a deep dive into the joys and satisfactions of growing from seed. We'll be right back after a break for more of our conversation with Claire. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, if you like this conversation with Claire Foster and you enjoy or want to know more about growing from seed, I want to offer out some additional resources. The first being Garden Flowers from Seed by the late Christopher Lloyd and Graham Rice, published in 1994. Another would be The New Seed Starters Handbook by Nancy Bubel, published in 1988. On the more historical and cultural literacy front, why don't you try this one, Seeds, Sex, and Civilization by Peter Thompson, published in 2010, or An Orchard Invisible by Jonathan Silverton, published in 2009. Seeds are a stage in the life of these plants that we love that I think calls out to many of us on many levels. They are quantum gardening made manifest. Now back to our conversation with Claire Foster, gardener, author, editor, and seed sower. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back to our conversation with gardener and plantswoman Claire Foster. Her new book encourages us to try our hands at growing some or even all of our garden flowers this season from seed. We're back with Claire sharing with us a few suggestions on the easiest of seeds to start with, as well as offering out at least one challenge. Welcome back. One of the elements I love about the book is the the I think it's the second section, but it's pretty far along in the book after the directory of specific plants. Uh, you talk a lot about sowing and growing, and you start off with a very nice directory of the different sort of categories of plant types, you know, from annuals, perennials, biennials. And mm-hmm. you give an indication of 
generalizations of when, you know, how they grow, what these terms mean, when you would generally sow these kinds of plants. Uh, and then you get, you know, into the different ways of sowing and preparing seeds for growing. Um, if you had, you know, I don't know, three or four plants that you would recommend listeners who might never have done this before, Claire, what what might those be, uh, say, you know, ones that you've just been really excited that you got going from seed? Okay. Well, that's 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 quite easy for me to, to answer. I've just been writing a talk that, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm doing next week up in um, in the north of England. And, and so I am doing exactly that. I'm just I'm kind of sifting through what's in the book and, and picking out four or five must have plants to grow from seed. Um, and so from my point of view, so I think one of my must haves for the cutting garden, at least, and also for the for as a as a filler in the border is Ami Magus, um, which is which grows very easily over here in the UK. And it's one of those really lovely kind of lacy filigree flowers and is is really easy to grow from seed. Um, and I always sow it in the autumn uh, in modules and then plant out in spring. And it's one of those flowers that will self-seed if it's if it's in the right place and if it's happy. Um, and so once you've sown it once, it will start popping up in different areas through the garden. And I, I love that. Yeah. And that, that one's called False Queen Anne's Lace as well, right? Just to give listeners a, yeah, yes. a sense of what, what it looks like. Yeah. It's a kind of posh cow pass, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. And I have that every year. It's just a really easy plant. Um, I also grow calendula, so the pot, pot marigold, mm-hmm. which... Is incredibly easy to grow from seed. I mean, literally, they just they they, they you you look at it and it, and it germinates. Um, so and they're the, you know the the classic calendula officinalis is is bright orange, and I I grow those because they're in my cottage garden at the front because they're very bright and cheerful. But there's also lots of um, slightly more subtle cultivars that you can grow, which are really good for cutting. Mm-hmm. And then another plant that I have grown over the last few years that's very good for gravel gardens is a dianthus. Um, mm. But it's not a kind of little um, kind of cushiony pink. It's a tall dianthus um, with kind of slightly subtle flowers. It's dianthus carthusianorum. And I first saw it a few years ago at Chelsea Flower Show, one of the big designers. I think maybe Ginny Blom had had grown it in her Chelsea garden and and it just looks lovely in a kind of meadowy situation dotted around long wiry stems and that again is very easy to grow from seed and it self-seeds absolutely everywhere and then what I do is dig up the seedlings as they appear um, in in early spring and pop them up and give them to friends and you know I did, did a plant sale earlier this year for for Maggie's. Maggie's is a cancer uh, charity over here. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. And then, oh, sweet peas. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do without sweet peas. And they're just, they're so easy, so easy. And and the only thing that we found in the book is that, of course, there's so many different, <laughs> different varieties yeah. that you, it's so hard to narrow it down. And it's all down to personal taste. So I grow 
all sorts of different varieties every year really it 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 doesn't matter you just grow the grow the ones that you you love and most of those that you've just outlined for us the amy the calendula the dianthus and the sweet peas you can all those are all pretty easily direct sown you prepare your sweet pea seed perhaps well, I, you know what? I don't. I, and, and for most of my seeds, I don't direct sow. I sow them undercover in, okay. in modules, not because they need heat, but because I just find it easier to manage. And there's so many things outside that can, can get your little seedlings. So, you know, they can be washed away by torrential rain or slugs or snails can come along. Um, or someone, some big foot can come and stamp on them. You know, it, there's there's all sorts of problems yes. that that can occur outside. So I, I just manage it by sowing as much as I can in in modules and modular seed trays, so that they're manageably sized seedlings before I plant them out. So they they have a chance in life, basically. Yeah, uh, which is so completely true and i was um picking snails off my garden this morning and collecting <laughs> them to put elsewhere and looking at the vegetable bed from winter which i still haven't gotten around to overdoing for the summer and my parsley has all gone to seed and i thought see that's a perfect example of sowing from seed and then having cut flowers and feeding the insects by not pulling my <laughs> parsley on time um, yeah, exactly. which, uh, which, which is, you know, it is nice how multifaceted a lot of these plants are, even in the ones you just described, you know, they're, they're cut flowers, they're feeding the insects, they often have a beautiful scent. And, you know, in the case of the, the calendula, at very least, they have wonderful kind of culinary and medicinal properties. So, mm, um, absolutely. okay, so if you had a seed in the book, one or two that are the most challenging, that are the hardest <laughs> to grow, that you think we should just give a try? What what would be your most challenging to us? Okay, most challenging. Well, we just we 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 tried not to put too much in that was challenging, <laughs> but um, I think for me the most challenging have been um, or layer. Mm. Randiflora is 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 for me has been fairly challenging, um, and, and in fact, I I sowed some this year and none of it germinated, <laughs> and I think it might be one of those one of those seeds that needs to go in the fridge before it's kick kick started, um, but you know again it's trial and error, and I don't get I just I I don't get too fussed about it. If it doesn't work, I will try again the following year. But I and I love Orlea grandiflora. Um, so I do keep trying year after year. And it yeah, it's a great filler. Um, I mean, I think in general, some of the perennials are more difficult by their very nature, because they are they can be kind of cold climate plants that do need that period of cold to germinate. Mm-hmm. So and they can just need that that specific temperature um, that we don't really know, you know, what it is. Um, so a lot of seed just needs a bit of kind of running around and 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 time before it germinates. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think maybe with the perennials too, it, they take a little longer to get fully established um, into their their real size. And so the chill hours, you know, do present a challenge for, for people. When I think about, you know, a lot of – when I went through the book, one of the things that I, I had a question about was how did you decide to handle the subject of invasiveness uh, given that some of these might be invasive in some places but not in many others? Um, and one of the – there were three that – maybe even four that came to mind for my specific region, which is relatively mild and dry, but um, the – Mexican feather grass, that is, I know, now on the California invasive plant list, uh, as are, oh, it's, it's. As are <laughs> both of the, the brisas, which are beautiful, um, you know, those quaking rattlesnake grasses, we call them here. And, um, and they're gorgeous, and they make gorgeous cut flowers, but they are invasive and everywhere in our wildlands. So did this come up as an issue for you as you went through the list? Well, you see, over here they're not they're not so invasive, um, and that is some, that's really interesting to hear because I didn't I, I I didn't know that. And if there was something in you know invasive over here, then I probably would just wouldn't have put it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we didn't you know actually address it address that the subject in 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 the book and perhaps we we should have done because it is it's it's it is an interesting it's an interesting thing isn't it it is but it Um, is so variable as well so those three things are are invasive for us but the minute you get into a colder climate where you get a real freeze for a length of time mm. they aren't they aren't invasive at all uh so you know i i i would just i guess given both of our experiences with that, I would definitely recommend to any reader that if it's sowing really readily in your garden, do a little Google search on whether or not if it's invasive in your area. And if it is, I would also recommend you you don't grow it there unless you're in mm-hmm. such an urban environment that you will not interface with wildlands at all. No, absolutely. And I think with annuals, it's slightly different yeah. because uh, they're, they're just they're not as in, as invasive. Right, right. But yeah, actually, Stipe tenuissima um, in my garden is self-seeding everywhere. Yeah. And we have had much less cold winters recently. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we're on the cusp of it being a problem over here. Yeah. I don't know. And <laughs> I shall look out for it. Yeah. And that that one is fairly easy because you can see those seed heads forming so quickly and you just kind of like hairbrush them out and you get a lot more control, mm. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. The other question I had was about resources. So were there two different issues of the book, an edition for the U.S. and one for the U.K.? Because I was really struck by how many, and proud, of how many U.S. seed sources were listed in the back of my edition. There were two different editions. Ah, okay. Lawrence King are very good at that. Yeah. They had someone do all the research over there, which was fantastic. Yeah, that is. It, and it's, it is a beautiful list of seed suppliers in the U.S. And it also looks nicely vetted to me so that they are uh, they are seed suppliers with great integrity. Um, mm, one, one question then, if a U.S. gardener is reading this and would be interested in seeing the U.K. seed supplier list, would they be able to find that somewhere, Claire? 
I'm sure that we could put it we could put it online somewhere. I'm sure the publishers could do that actually. Good idea. Or I'm very happy to email it to people. Okay. Uh, I just think it would be fun. I know a lot of gardeners here, you know, often travel there and would love mm-hmm. to just know some of some of the names and, and places to look for. Um, yeah. So as we're as we're starting to sort of move toward uh, the end of our time, you know, as you've gone through this process of writing the book and collaborating with Sabina and working with Lawrence King and then starting to take the messages of the book out into the public world, have there been surprises for you of of how the messages have been picked up by people, the reception to this topic? Um, I'm not sure whether there have been any big surprises, but people, you know, it has been very well received and, and, and I'm very happy about that, mm. of course. I don't know. I think there's a, there, there, there is a big drive, certainly in this country, towards growing at the moment and growing from seed and growing cup flowers. Certainly, I was at Wisley earlier on this week and the book buyer, the RHS book buyer was there and he supplies the Chelsea bookshop. Mm -hmm. And he said that it it went down very well at the Chelsea Flower Show, which I was absolutely delighted Mm -hmm. about. I'm just very happy about how how it's been received and and how people seem to be engaging with the subject. Yeah. And with that in mind and your work, which has, you know, perhaps a, a pretty large cultural overview are there are there implications to that from your perspective on the place of gardening in our culture right now and how it is shifting as we move forward with things like you know concerns about biodiversity and the climate crisis yeah, I think I, I certainly um, have seen a shift in the style of gardening or garden design, I should say, because at House and Garden, the articles that I, I work on are prim- primarily about garden design. So I have seen a shift recently away from um, very formal gardens towards uh, a more relaxed way of gardening, you know, more biodiverse um, and Designers like Dan Pearson and, and Ginny Blom are saying the same thing over and over again, which is they'll have a formal part of the garden around the house and then they'll just bleed off into wilderness and they'll use more natural plants so that there's there's you know there are more habitats for wildlife and and it is just a more ecological way of gardening, I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. When you look back over your now substantial career at this work and the different things you've seen come and go and what you have immersed yourself in, what are what are your greatest joys in this work and how do you measure success for for your own sort of garden life and work at this point, Claire? Um, success. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I I I love my work as much as I did when I when I started and I can say that hand on heart I, I I really do and I feel very lucky to be in in this world um and I think we touched on it before that a lot of people I mean you know 99% of the people I meet in this in this business in in gardening and garden design and in plant growing 
community. People are so happy to, to share their knowledge. I feel like I'm always learning and uh, that I will always be learning because there's, <laughs> I don't think there is, is ever an end mm -mm. to learning about horticulture <laughs> and plants. Is no, there? no. And, and I love that feeling, mm -hmm. really. And, and the fact that I can tie it in with, with writing, which is very creative, um, and then the, the visual side of, of things in creating books and, and magazine articles, um, it, it just works for me, really. So I just want to continue doing what I'm doing um, and looking for the next book idea, I guess. Yeah, yeah. How old are your kids now, Claire? So they're 14 and 16, two boys. And how, how are they feeling about the cottage garden in the in Berkshire? Oh, they, they love it as long as they've got enough space and, and enough lawn to play cricket on <laughs> and football. And have you gotten them weeding and deadheading? They, 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 yeah, they, they don't show a huge amount of interest in, in the actual plants, <laughs> to say. You know, occasionally they do. They notice something, which is is quite nice. But um, you know, I have brought them up to to know where their food is coming from because I grow vegetables as well, and and that's important to me. And I did when they were younger. I tried to encourage them to to garden, and they did. You know, help me plant potatoes and plant bulbs, and they they seem to enjoy that. But you know, I think there's a fairly romantic notion about getting kids to help in the garden. Yeah, it's sometimes more trouble than it's worth, really. But um, <laughs> it's absolutely. Yeah. But they do, you know, without knowing it, they've assimilated that knowledge in a way, um, and that connection with gardens. And, and I'm glad about that. Yeah. So how big is your garden there? Your your cottage garden in, in the making in the evolving? It's, um, it's not huge. It's about a quarter of an acre. So there's a front garden, gravel garden, and then um, a back garden. Uh, and it's kind of just about the right size for me at the moment, because I don't have time to do as much gardening as I would ideally like. So, so it's, it's the ideal size for me. And I manage it mostly on my own. My husband does a bit of mowing and building if anything needs building but um mainly it's me and final question are there any new seeds you plan to experiment in the coming season well i've got my eye on one poppy in particular which chilton seeds have been trying to introduce for a while it's called amazing gray it has the most amazing movie gray flowers and it is absolutely beautiful but it's not quite available yet because last year we had um, a drought really all over Europe and I think Chilton seeds that their, their growers in Italy and it was so dry that the crop failed and they couldn't get the seeds so I'm waiting with bated breath for that one. <laughs> okay all right is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I don't think so. I, don't, I think we've covered we've covered a, a good range of things there. Thank you. It's been it's been really nice and and it's made me think about my book. Oh, good. <laughs> I very much appreciate you being a guest. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
Claire Foster is the garden editor at House and Garden UK and has been a garden writer for nearly 20 years, having started her career at Gardens Illustrated magazine. She shared with us today her journey to writing her newest book, The Flower Garden, How to Grow Flowers from Seed, which is just out this year from Lawrence King Press. Claire's other books include Compost, Your Allotment, and painterly plants. You can follow Claire's garden life journey at budtoseed.co.uk or houseandgarden.co.uk. Summer is all about fruits and flowers and fecundity in the garden. Even if you don't have much of a garden, this is the image we hold of the summer garden, I think. Perhaps sometimes to our detriment. Sometimes the image in our heads handed to us from someone or somewhere on some page can be so irritatingly different than the reality in our actual day-to-day gardens. It can be for me. July in interior Northern California is hot and dry and more hot and more dry. The days are blindingly bright, and the heat reflected off of the pathways and open areas is nothing short of radiation exposure. A gardening kindred spirit, Wolfgang Rugel, referred to this time in our seasonal year as another winter. It is a time of dormancy and retreat from the heat for plants and for us, very much like what we think of as winter. Listening to Claire talk about the ease of flowers in summer from a place of summer green and generally reliable rains off and on in England, I would remind myself and the rest of us who might not live quite there to not see this as garden aspiration envy, not to look at just that exact garden but to take the heart of this message back to our own gardens and our own places and see what meets the heart of the idea right there, right where you or I might be. In my garden, this looks like the tougher-than-nails, seed-sown California native buckwheats who love our blinding heat and scorching days. It looks like noticing the wildland interface scrub plants, that bloom, I mean really bloom, despite all such summer dormancy hardships. The vinegar weed and rabbit brush and the sacred datura that seeded herself in my front courtyard with no participation on my part. I am grateful and surprised by her every day. She is a seed of my place. I really hope that you don't take every episode you hear, no matter where you live, and let it make you want to be somewhere else, but rather make you want to see exactly where you are. I hope you have the time and even momentary mental and physical space to see and appreciate the seeds of your place and your garden as they actually exist. In part, because of the joy that Claire brings to her seeds in her garden. 
Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Claire's garden life and beautiful new book, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. And if you never want to miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there at the website. The Cultivating Place team now includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and executive producer Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.